Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. Today we go behind the headlines as the United Methodist Church is not so united. A worldwide church conference ended this week in St. Louis. The general conference was convened to consider rescinding the church bans on ordination of gay clergy and performing same-sex marriages. More than 800 delegates from around the world voted to maintain the official church position. St. Louis Public Radio reporter Shayla Farzan covered the conference. In this recorded conversation, I asked if she was surprised by the vote. I wasn't, actually, uh, partly because of what I had seen leading up to the vote itself. Um, So, you know, the... The United Methodist delegates, these were delegates, you know, elected from across the world, um, were really considering three main plans here. Uh, One was the One Church plan. um, And, you know, basically that plan would have lifted the ban on LGBTQ clergy and same-sex weddings. But it also, you know, would have given groups of churches in the U.S. uh, kind of the power to set their own policies. They were also considering a, a regional uh, more regional plan um, that would have restructured the church into three groups and then let each of those groups decide. Um, and then finally, you know, they considered a, a traditionalist plan, um, which was basically the status quo. Um, so not only was it maintaining the ban on LGBTQ clergy and uh, same-sex weddings, but it was also adding, um, you know, some more punitive measures, some punishments for violating those rules. So no, I wasn't surprised. I, I kind of in the lead up to it, it seemed like that was where the delegates were heading. Was it an emotional crowd? It was. Um, and so I think uh, I think probably some of the most emotional moments came towards the end of the conference, mm. um, you know, kind of particularly around the outcome. Um, so, for instance, uh, immediately after the traditional plan passed, uh, delegates, you know, dozens of delegates got out of their seats, they congregated in the middle of the floor, um, and they were singing, they were chanting, and there was kind of this uh, call and answer protest song that they were doing with the audience. Um, And then pretty soon afterwards, you know, United Methodist protesters tried to rush onto the floor, um, and they barred the doors. And, you know, we had these protesters, many of them draped in rainbow flags, hammering on the doors and saying, let us in, let us in. And, I mean, you can understand the the double meaning of those Mm -hmm. words, and it was a really poignant moment. What were some of the basic arguments that you heard on various uh, sides of these issues? Yeah, so I guess starting with the traditionalist plan, which passed, um, supporters of that plan uh, take a really conservative, biblical view of homosexuality. So essentially, they're arguing that homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teachings and with the Bible as a whole. Um, I think that a really important point to make here is that um, the United Methodist Church is a global church. Um, It's a really big part of the issue. Um, And there are some nations in the world um, where LGBTQ issues um, are considered anti-Christian, particularly some, you know, African nations. Mm -hmm. And that creates a lot of tension in the church um, for maybe, I guess, two main reasons. One is that uh, U.S. membership is shrinking in the church, but it's growing worldwide, um, especially in some African nations. And I think the other big part of this here is that United Methodists, like a lot of denominations, have this really sort of long 
complicated history of colonialism, especially in African mm -hmm. nations. Um, and so some people that I've chatted with have said, you know, this feels like changing the goalposts on us mid-game, mm -hmm. introducing these more inclusive policies for LGBTQ people. My understanding is, correct me if I'm wrong, there are about 12 million Methodists worldwide. Does that sound right to you? Yep, just over. What sort of a percentage would Africa uh, be of that number? It's a little less than half at this point. So. Um, and I think, you know, the, the United Methodist Church is a very diverse church. You know, they have members not only in the U.S. and Africa, but also, you know, Europe and Asia and the Philippines. And I think to to the church's credit, they've really tried to represent that diversity in the delegates that were charged with making this decision. Um, so I think I might get the numbers wrong here, but about 58 percent of the delegates were from the U.S., and about 30% were from African nations. Um, and so they really were trying to represent that diversity. Given the emotion that you described just a couple of moments ago, what do you think that could mean for the future of the church? Yeah, so, you know, the, tr the traditionalists, the more conservative members of the church, really feel that with this decision, they're holding fast to their beliefs um, and trying to hold the church together based on those biblical beliefs. I think you know, you heard over and over again uh, during this conference that, you know, we have to keep the church together, this global church. Um, I think the people who wanted more LGBTQ inclusive policies, um, they obviously are very upset and disappointed. Um, I had one supporter tell me he felt absolutely defeated, like the house is on fire and no one is mm. putting out the fire. Um, and I think that a big argument that I've heard from them is that you know, with this decision, the church is moving in the wrong direction. Um, they think that the church is going to lose younger members and become less relevant in the future. What are the chances of this coming up again? And I assume that it will, but when could it come up again? Right. So um, the United Methodists basically have a general conference every four years. Um, and the last one was in 2016 in Portland. So they have another one coming up in 2020 next year. Um, and that's basically when they make a lot of big decisions for the church. And they decide whether or not to um, revise their book of discipline, which is their book of law. Um, they just decided to call this special conference because they weren't able to uh, you know, address some of these issues of human sexuality within the confines of that schedule in the general conference. Um, but what I'm hearing is that there will probably uh, be challenges to this new traditionalist plan that passed um, on kind of on the grounds of its constitutionality. Um, and so I think that we will almost certainly see this issue come up again, uh, likely next year. There was one allegation uh, that I saw someplace about vote buying, the potential for that, and perhaps that even occurred during this uh, this group meeting. Uh, any evidence of that to your knowledge? Oh, you know, it's, it's complicated. So um, essentially what I heard was that, um, you know, there's a more kind of conservative group of United Methodist members um, called the, uh, the Wesleyan Covenant Association, mm. uh, paid for African members to come early before the conference, you know, uh, maybe bought their meals, had special meetings with them. Um, and so there there were some allegations of, of vote buying. Mm -hmm. um, and I believe that um, the delegates actually voted to refer um, some of these concerns to their committee of ethics or committee on ethics to try to review that and, and see whether there's evidence of vote buying.
That's St. Louis Public Radio reporter Shayla Farzan. We continue our conversation now with Matt Majofsky, lead pastor at The Gathering, a St. Louis church that prides itself as fully inclusive of the LGBTQ community. And Adam Ployd, assistant professor of church history and historical theology at Eden Theological Seminary. Gentlemen, thanks for coming in. Great to have you. Thank you, Don. Thank you. Matt, let me start with you. Uh, what, what do you make of the vote? Well, I think... Uh, as you accurately reported, there was a, a lot of us that were really hoping that this could be the general conference, that we could loosen up the restrictions. I mean, I think it was important to note that uh, even the loosening, the one church plan, was really just an opportunity for pastors and churches to decide what made the most sense in their local context. So I was disappointed, obviously, uh, for our church and for uh, a lot of churches that are in ministry with a lot of LGBTQ people that the church decided to double down on this traditional stance. But I also was not completely surprised for the reasons that you've already pointed out, that because the Methodist Church decides to do business in this particular way with a global delegation, it makes, uh, it makes votes like this particularly complicated and not always reflective of what a Methodist church might look like on your neighborhood street corner. Yeah, clearly there was a, a, a significant amount of opposition to the change. There. That's right, and especially in from United States delegates. And mm -hmm. so, I always try to tell people that that's not really an excuse. And there's not there's plenty of people to blame on all sides for the mess the church is in. Uh, but the vote from the general conference, there, there's a real disconnect from that vote and the way a lot of people have experienced the Methodist Church or do currently experience their Methodist Church uh, where they live. Adam, what's your take on it? Well, uh, I'd like to preface my take by just acknowledging that both Matt and I are cis-straight white men speaking on this issue and that none of our siblings uh, in the LGBTQ Methodist community are in this particular conversation, which is not to critique, but simply to name that absence and sort of invoke their presence and hopefully their blessings for our ability to represent them as allies. Um, I was certainly very disappointed. My wife is an out bisexual woman who is also a clergy person in the, in the United Methodist Church. She has the privilege, well, I was about to say she has the privilege of being married to me, but that's not what I mean. What I mean is since she is married to a man, she has a little bit of privilege in that charges can't really be brought up against her because she's not technically violating anything. But what that means is for me and my family, this is a very close issue about who is being affirmed and who is being included. Um, I would say that a couple things that stood out to me about the vote that she actually pointed out to me when I was feeling very devastated by it mm -hmm. is just how close it was and that we don't want to keep kicking the can down the road, right? We don't want to keep uh, just saying maybe at the next conference, maybe at the next conference. But there is something to be said about the fact that there was a closeness to the vote that might buoy a little bit of hope for the future of the United Methodist Church, whatever it's going to look like in the coming years. Only a difference of 50-some-odd votes out of uh, more than 800 cases. Exactly. So that was very close. I have to take a break in a moment, but let me ask you as a historian, mm -hmm. how does the United Methodist Church rank with regard to this issue compared to other denominations? It depends on how far we're throwing that net. Mm -hmm. So if we're talking mainline Protestant denominations in the U.S., we are a little bit behind. 
if we are talking uh, denominations globally and beyond the main line, then we're pretty much right in the middle, I would say. All right. Well, let's take that break now, come back and have a further conversation on this issue. And we're talking about uh, the decision made by the United Methodist Church here in St. Louis this week to maintain their position on homosexuality. Back in just a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Now back to our conversation with Matt Mayofsky, lead pastor of The Gathering here in St. Louis, and Adam Ployd of Eden Theological Seminary. Let me come back to you, Adam, if I may, with regard to uh, the, the breakdown of the vote. Um, Africa was considered a key element in this. Why? Well, that is a very complex question. And so uh, I'd say there are two dimensions to it. One is simply the demographics of the vote. African delegates tend to vote more conservatively on this issue. Now, I don't want to paint Africa as a single monolith and certainly not the African delegation to this. Uh, but in as much as there is a voting caucus, it tends to vote very conservative. But the second aspect to that is kind of the cultural history that goes into the complex relationships among churches within the global United Methodist Church. The best example or best way of explaining it that I've heard is that years ago, um, Methodist and non-Methodist missionaries went to Africa, went to communities that were rooted in polygamous marriages, pointed at the Bible and said, look, the Bible clearly says this is wrong. Therefore, to be saved, to be Christian, you have to send these extra wives away and their children, and many families did. Now. It feels like, um, I imagine to many of the delegates, that the rules are changing and more progressive liberal people like me are saying, actually, sexuality is different from what we've been saying. And African delegates might point and say, well, look, in the Bible it says X, so therefore homosexuality is clearly wrong. And we say, oh, no, you're interpreting it wrong. So that the question of who has authority to interpret the Bible can become some of the undercurrent. Right. We have uh, one of the members of, uh, of uh, the African delegation to the conference on tape that we'd like to play for you. This is Akebele Leonathan, and uh, he is a delegate from Africa's Ivory Coast in support of the traditional plan that we've been talking about. I've heard many people say, youth say this, youth say this. I am a young adult. I come from Africa. We have many youth in Africa and in the whole world who are saying no to the one church plan and who support the traditional plan. And so for this reason, I would like to ask for people to support the traditional plan. I believe it is God's word. That was Akebele speaking through a translator, by the way. Matt, let me come back to you. The, the biblical references that we're hearing about, what are the biblical references? I, my understanding is, not being a biblical scholar, Bible scholar, that uh, there aren't any references. Well, and this is another thing that uh, you know people get into debates about if people were listening to the general conference. It's, it's not just a matter of what the Bible says, but how you understand the things that the Bible says. And so I think people on one side would say direct references to something like same-sex relationships are limited to a handful of references throughout the Bible, five, maybe six. People on the other side would say, yeah, but uh, 
there's all sorts of references to marriage and uh, what marriage ought to look like. And so I think even with that question, you get you have the same Bible, even though it, it only references something like same-sex relationships, maybe five times. Jesus certainly never said anything about it. On the other side, you have people saying, yeah, but there's all these different uh, times where the Bible talks about marriage and never once does it say anything about marriage looking different. And so uh, very quickly you find if you start talking Bible, not just on this, but on any issue, as a lot of people might imagine. It's like the Constitution. (laughs) Pretty soon you get down to, you're all looking at the same, you know, words on the same paper, but our understandings are very different. Your, your take, uh, Adam? No, I, th- I think Matt is completely right. And I think that um, for me as a progressive on this issue, uh, when people challenge me, it's normally we're not just talking what does the Bible say, but as Matt says, how are we making sense of what it says? One of the things that I try to impress upon my students at Eden is that we never read anything without interpreting it. And so the question that I think the Methodist Church has to answer or be willing to wrestle with is what is the message of Scripture when it comes to issues of including those who have traditionally been excluded? What is the Bible's consistent witness about welcoming those who at one time had been deemed uh, outside and not part of the group? Jesus' basic premise was inclusion, was it not? I, mean, I, I think that is, on. yeah. I, I'll, I'll often tell people who argue with me from a more traditional standpoint, you know, I'll ask them, do you have a 401k or a, a pension <laughs> or do you have a savings account? And they shake their head, well, of course. I said, well, you know, Jesus also said to sell everything you have and give the money to the poor and follow me. Mm-hmm. Immediately, all of a sudden, they become more nuanced in how they read the words mm-hmm. on the page. Mm-hmm. So. I, I want to play another clip just to indicate that uh, th- there were a number of people, as we've already mentioned, uh, who were involved in this conference who were for change. So let's listen to uh, Nancy Donardo. She is a, a delegate from Western Pennsylvania. She drew some boos, and that's what we'll hear uh, as she speaks against the One Church plan. The Word became flesh, not the flesh becomes the Word. I'm truly sorry if the truth of the gospel hurts anyone, but know that I and those who support the traditional plan love you enough to tell you the truth. Nancy, watch your time. God gave you free will. Choose widely. Choose wisely. That's Nancy DiNardo, a delegate from Western Pennsylvania to the conference. As you heard there, there was, a, uh, there was some opposition to the kinds of things that, uh, that she was saying. There's talk about, uh, about punishment for people who don't follow the, uh, the, the gospel, if you will, in this particular case. What kind of punishment are we talking about? What kick out of the church? Is that the, uh, the idea? Well, I think what was attempted in the traditional plan was to put some teeth to the accountability. Mm-hmm. Uh, so right now, There are already pastors all over the country, not only who are uh, gay themselves, but also who officiate LGBTQ uh, weddings. There's even a bishop in the United Methodist Church who is gay. And so people behind the traditional plan, they don't just want the church to reaffirm its traditional teaching, but they want to make sure that there are measures in place to Uh, deal with people who break those teachings. And so part of what was included in there 
and this is some of what's called into question by the Judicial Council. You had mentioned that some of this might be unconstitutional. A lot of this was included in that. But, they, but what they want is they want easier, cleaner, more consistent ways to deal with and or punish those who break uh, the rules. Adam, I'll turn to you with regard to uh, the future of the United Methodist Church. <laughs> what kind of a future does it have, do you think? That is the $50 million question. And I think that we won't know that for sure for some time. I think the, the considerations that go into that will be, one, what will individual churches and individual clergy on every side of this issue see as their particular future with the church? You know, will there be um, an exodus of more conserving churches or of more progressive clergy because this didn't go the way they might have wanted it, it, it to? Um, I do not know. I am not enough of a uh, polity wonk to know uh, what the real options are. I'm more of a theologian wonk, and so I can say this that regardless of the future of the Methodist Church or the United Methodist Church, that the future of God's work with God's LGBTQIA children is part of what is going to happen going forward. Your, your thoughts, Matt? The future? Yeah, I, I, really, I really do believe that there is something on the other side of this. Mm -hmm. uh, there will be uh, a new movement of the people who are now called Methodists. I, I think there's a, such a broad coalition all over the country, large, small, black, white, rural, urban, people who want to see the church become something different from what this vote represents. And I really think as the dust settles, as we move into the future, you'll see a lot of those churches begin to connect with one another and chart out a, a different way forward, whether that means a new denomination, a new <laughs> subset within a denomination. You know, it's a little early to tell, but uh, this is not going to stop what's already happening. The, the truth that communities are already discovering, the ways in which churches like The Gathering mm -hmm. are already in ministry with LGBTQ people, that's not going to change for us and for a lot of churches like us. So uh, we are hitting some turbulence and some rough waters, but I, I know that we believe at The Gathering that there's a new day on the other side of this that's going to mean a church that's more inclusive and more welcoming to all people. You had indicated before you went on the air that you thought this was a, an overall setback for the LGBTQ community. Um, is it really? I mean, we also said that there were, it, yeah. it, it generated conversation, which is a good thing for understanding. Yeah, well, you know, my take is essentially it did two things. One, we can't ever reverse. I mean, just the decision, just the declaration that the Methodist Church made here hurts LGBTQ people, and we can't reel that back in. Uh, there's harm that's caused. It opens up old wounds for some. It inflicts new ones. And we have to take that seriously. On the other hand, I think the actual legislation is not going to change mm -hmm. what happens on the ground in churches like uh, The Gathering and, like I said, mm -hmm. hundreds of other churches. Uh, that legislation is not actually going to change the way in which we're in ministry. So in that sense, I think that it just gives churches like The Gathering reason to say, hey, look, we don't, uh, not only do we not agree with that, but if you want to be part of a church that will mm -hmm. welcome you into all levels of ministry, uh, come check out ours because uh, we do it differently here. And so it, it gives us an opportunity, I think, 
to, to show people a different side of what the church can be. What is your relationship with the mother church? If you will? <laughs> well, I don't know after general conference, but uh, I'm a United Methodist pastor. I started the gathering 12 years ago. I was a delegate, one of the 864 that was on the floor voting and pressing buttons. So my relationship has been close, although a strained, because right now we stand in opposition to what was true before this general conference, certainly what's true after this general conference. So along with uh, you and many of your listeners, I'm, I'm waiting and anticipating what this is going to mean for my own relationship with the greater denomination. We're going to have to wrap this up momentarily. Adam, is there a final thought you want to leave us with that uh, people should know about the things that we've been talking about? I would say that the main thing I would want to communicate uh, for our LGBTQI listeners out there who have either been turned off by the church writ large or are particularly disheartened by this, that the General Conference of the United Methodist Church doesn't get to define the extent of God's love, and that there are many people, such as uh, Pastor Miofsky, who are committed to creating spaces for that. Final thought, Matt? Uh, I, I think in the wake of something like this, you know, we live in a world, not just a church, but a world uh, that still has a, a lot of issues, homophobia being one of them. And I tell people that uh, the church can be a great source of hope in a world like that. For anyone who's looking for an encouraging word, a word of hope, a word that something can look different, especially for LGBTQ people, uh, Come and, come and check out our church or a church near you that uh, is affirming because uh, you'll find there a lot of people who are traveling the same road as you. And so at the gathering, we have hundreds, thousands of those kinds of people. And so this weekend, I'll be talking about uh, a message of God's inclusive love, as I know hundreds of other pastors will as well. And we should point out you have four locations in which people can visit. <laughs> we do. We'll, we'll make a note of those on our website at stlpublicradio.org. Matt Majofsky, thank you so much for being with us, and uh, the lead pastor of The Gathering, about which we've been talking, and uh, talking, and Adam Ployd of Eden Theological Seminary. Thank you, gentlemen, for being with us. My pleasure. Thanks, too, to Shayla Farzan for her help on this program. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.